This is an ABC podcast. Those slightly discordant notes in the right hand of the keyboard signal that this is time for the minefield. Show where we try to negotiate the ethical and moral dilemmas of modern life. Waleed Ali is my name. Scott Stevens is my co-host. I just read the script today. Scott, I thought it would be easier. Yeah, yeah. It was very nice, thank you. But you yeah. also switched into this is late night with Waleed. Ah, uh, it was really my favorite. My favorite back announcing style is um, the classic FM one. Yeah, where they, they play a song and it, it always seems to begin with that was the fourth <laughs> violin concerto in D minor. Do you know what I mean? I do. It it seems to be a close on the mic, do not project under any circumstances sort of technique. Well, it is. It is. But I actually think it's something even deeper than that. How have we never talked about this? It's also the fact that the role of the, what do we call the person on the other side of the microphone in that particular instance? It's not the announcer. It's DJ, not the DJ. Yeah. No, it's, God, it's not the <laughs> DJ. It's the, it's one's tour guide. Their role in that particular instance is to point as gently and as helpfully as possible to the true object of mutual fascination, rather than instead of coming in with some bit of reassertion of the ego, it's trying to say as gently, as tenderly as possible, how about that? Wasn't that something? There's this. No, but I disagree because it doesn't say how about that. It just says as blandly as possible the facts of what you listen to. Yeah, but, but isn't that the point? So we we have to do a show on this sometime. We absolutely have to. Okay, so I, I can neither play nor read music. Um, but I have a, a deep, deep love of particular forms of music and particular composers. And one of the pieces of music that I just have this abiding fascination with is Bach's Goldberg Variations. I don't know if you've listened to many or how many of them you've listened to. But they're almost, they always tend to be a kind of canvas on which the disposition, the ego, the virtues or lack of, uh, of the performer can kind of project themselves. And so you have someone like Lang Lang, who's one of the great um, Chinese pianists of this generation. But Walid, I find his rendition of the Goldberg Variations unlistenable because he asserts simply far too much of himself in it. There's too much. There's simply too much of him. And then there's someone, and, and this is the one that I just love. I find myself listening to it almost every two or three days. Uh, uh, Wilhelm Kempf, which is as workmanlike a rendition of the variations as you can imagine. No trills, no frills. It's simply, it's almost like he's a transparent pane of glass. Uh, through which the person listening to it can observe the beauty of the piece itself. I just think there's something in that about the nature of the moral life. Those figures in our common life who either try to make things about themselves and try to use certain forms of moral language or public posturing, uh, a kind of performance of the ego – Versus those who try as much as they can. And this is where I see the role of the person back announcing whatever it was you just listened to on, you know, on late night FM or classic FM. Um, (laughs) The role there is to direct the common gaze towards a shared object of love so that it can be seen purely and clearly. And I, uh, I, I think there's something about morality the nature of our understanding of the moral life, that probably has more to do with that than it does with, if I can put it this way, the gaudy saints, the saints who kind of make it about their performance. Yeah. So I think this is interesting. We have to, we, we should do a show on... We should. What is the performer's responsibility? Because... <laughs> Absolutely. Oh, my God. Because um, there are certain forms of... I mean, you wouldn't want someone who is the front man of a rock band to take the approach you're describing. No, that's... Because then it would be devoid of any personality. Yes, I think that's true. I think that's true. And you wouldn't although, want someone who's back-announcing a track like that yep. to do classic FM back-announce. Although Dylan did it in deadpan. I mean, there there were performances in the late 60s and early 70s where he effectively did it deadpan. He 
he almost erased himself from the performance and was mere voice. There was yeah, and you saw you had similar things like that with Pink Floyd, right? Yeah, true. Building the wall, for yep. example, so they would disappear behind it and so on and so. But but even then, that's not necessarily a moral affectation so much as an artistic one. Yes, it's true. That's right. Yeah. Okay. Well, right. well, there's a show in that. Good meeting, everybody. But then should we do today's but then show? Freddie Mercury. I mean, oh, well, that's a totally different. That's a totally yeah. different thing. Yeah. I yeah. kind of am, am I am I wrong in thinking maybe we have a show brewing? I think we do. We do. Okay. We've probably got a couple. Moving on now. (laughs) All right. Let's do today's show. Do we... My first thought about today's show is, do we have to talk about this? Yes, absolutely. Okay. Why do we have to talk about this? Well, because we touched on it last week, uh, because everything was kind of breaking as, you know, after we already determined our topic and selected our contestants, (laughs) and there were certain points of unavoidable connection and convergence, and so we had to... Talk about it briefly, uh, but this week I think there are a number of things that are both clearer about the topic at hand, but there are also a number of things that I believe we should regard as irrelevant and a number of other mm-hmm. things about which I believe we have become a little bit too fuzzy because of our fixation with a matter of irrelevance. The irrelevance, okay. let, let's just stop the striptease, we're, we're talking not just about Scott Morrison's secret ministries. We're talking about political secrecy, and that takes us into slightly different terrain. Um, But I think one of the things that's preoccupied so much public conversation over the last two weeks is why he did it. What was... And so we've been hearing phrases like Scott Morrison's power grab. I've read stories over the last couple of days about a messiah complex or his desire to have godlike powers. It is interesting. Which I always found a bit odd yeah. because he didn't use them. Yes, true. I mean, but once. But once, and on a very minor issue. So what's, well, I don't know if it was minor or not, but what's interesting about it is it was a de- decision that the current government supports. So, yes, that's right. <laughs> so what's interesting <laughs> is you have this, the practical effect of this was nothing except one decision that the current government thinks was a good one. But I understand this is not about practical outcomes so much as um, yeah, yeah. But, underlying, but it is worth yeah, saying, though, Willie, that there have been a number of people who have been arguing against this being a topic of public conversation who have said, who cares? Okay, Mostly the opposition. Though. Mostly the opposition. That's true. And Barnaby Joyce certainly articulated this very forcefully over the weekend. What did he say? People at the pub don't care about Scott Morrison's secret ministries. Well, okay, fair enough. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll just confess, Willie, I have... I have zero interest in the personal pathologies behind it. Um, it is inter- Which is interesting, can I say? Yeah. Because I infer from the commentary that that's the lion's share of the intrigue. Yes. Yeah. Can I get you to say something about that, why you think that's the case? Well, I just think there's something, I, I've thought this for a while, and I, I, I'm beginning to think this is just an unpopular view, but there's something about the way the new government is talking about this that feels like it's still in the last election campaign. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We talked about this briefly last week. Yeah. yeah, and it's asking us to make a verdict or reach a verdict on Scott Morrison mm-hmm. himself. And so everything, all the language that surrounds it is about Morrison himself in the ways that you've mentioned it, Messiah Complex Power Grab, yeah. et cetera, et cetera, this sort of psychopathologization. But also... It attaches really, you know, it's it's a discourse of weirdness, etc. Now, all right, and I'm not even necessarily, I'm not saying that's wrong. It's just not necessarily relevant to the future. And so we've, we've found, given, you know, Scott Morrison is now, I think, on fairly strong grounds, political history. Yeah. I get he's a current serving member, but, you know, lots of people are current serving members. I don't think he's going to have any – he's going to have very little influence over his party and he's not going to hold a senior political position again as far as I can tell. Mm. Right? Mm-hmm. So given that, I'm not sure what the benefit is for the Australian public and for the future in a sort of continued interrogation of Scott Morrison's weirdness or messiah complexes or whatever – um, explanation you choose to favour. Hmm. And so I found myself feeling a little unmoored, I think is the word, um, this week as we've seen the new government not even launch the inquiry, but say it would launch the inquiry. So announce the forthcoming announcement. Yeah. And I, I was, uh, it just got me wondering what, what exactly is the inquiry 
what, what exactly is it for? Like, wh- why? Let's go back to first principles. Why do you have inquiries? Well, it seems to me you have inquiries because you identify some quite thorough, deep, systemic problem that requires serious interrogation to understand and to diagnose fully so that you could put things in place to remedy that situation, to prevent it recurring. Mm. This sits alongside a narrative that is dominated by the the weirdness of Scott Morrison. Mm. And if it is the weirdness of Scott Morrison, then an inquiry wouldn't be a forward-looking thing because it's very unlikely, this has never happened before, the moral hazard that surrounds this, given this scandal, probably ensures it would never happen again. Mm -hmm. And even if you wanted, if you were worried about it happening again, that's a very easy fix, it seems to me. Like the government goes, briefs its relevant solicitor and that it gets an answer on how to do that in an afternoon, probably. So I don't quite understand what the inquiry is doing. All right. I, I think I disagree on almost every point. All right. Apart from, apart from the one that I don't think we should be focused on Scott Morrison's, what you described as his weirdness. Um, something, we discussed about, something we discussed off air months ago, which I'm glad that until now we never discussed on air, yeah. was Sean Kelly's use of a little literary diagnostic device by E.M. Forster, one of my favorite novelists, where he makes the distinction between flat characters versus deep characters. Uh, deep yeah. characters are sort of fully characterologically developed figures. Or was it round characters? I within novels. Phrase yeah. Anyway. Yeah. E- either one. Flat character is someone who is effectively a filler. Um, they, they are there to operate as a kind of stereotype. Flat characters only ever operate in a single way. They don't have any depth to them because whenever they appear, you expect them to do the one thing. So, you know, uh, mm-hmm. certain characters in certain of E.M. Forster's novels, you just expect them to be panicked all the time or you expect them to be reminiscent or nostalgic all the time. Or, 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 Steve or, Urkel. Steve Urkel. <laughs> yes. How did I think exactly. of that <laughs> what I What I don't like, what I don't like is that Sean, and I expressed this to you off air when we first discussed it, I didn't like the fact that Sean Kelly applied that particular diagnosis to Scott Morrison's political persona. Not one bit. Because, I mean, one of the things that Ian Forster insists again and again is that this is not the kind of thing that you can apply to a human being, qua human being. That's not the way that human beings operate. Human beings are not stereotypes. And in everyday consort, in our kind of daily deliberations and communications, they don't function in a single predictable way. But but I would would leap to Sean's defense in a moderate way and say, I'm not sure he's discussing... The human being. No, but as a political so persona. As a political persona. That's right. does operate in a manner akin to a character. Well, it does. In our public imagination yeah, and it, in it, public. Mm, now, you could argue mm. perhaps they shouldn't. Um, and I, I have argued that we do have a problem in that we dehumanise politicians yes, so we refuse to see them as human. Yep. But where you are talking about a kind of um, affectation, I, I'm not altogether imp- opposed to sort of importation of a literary motif like that. No, no, true. I think it reveals something, like it it points to something of the truth. And there is a tendency, and we've discussed this previously, there is a tendency on the part of the former prime minister to address people in such a way and to move on from previously held opinions or previously made decisions in such a way that he seems untroubled by what he said previously, unmoved by what he did previously, and uh, bound effectively to neither. So that that kind of simply moving on, simply laying out word salads in the form of press conferences uh, as if what he just said amounted to much, but without any real sense of engagement or depth or anything else. In, in other words, speech as dissimulation rather than as revelation or, or, or disclosure. Mm. There is something about that, and I think this is something that continues to haunt the former prime minister. There is something about that very tendency to dissimulate that leads people to wonder about what's there then? What's he hiding? And unfortunately, and you've written about this, we've talked about this, I think to some extent a, a kind of religious motivation or a religious narrative has been used to, to fill in the gaps, to provide the depth. 
Uh, I think in this particular instance, a psychopathology has been used to fill in the gaps to provide the depth, the godlike powers, messiah complex, or or whatever else, which we saw a lot with Donald Trump as well. Right? Absolutely right. So so look yeah. for for something that we decided we weren't going to talk about. We've ended up talking about it a, a little bit. Um, where I disagree, Walid, one of the most precious things. So, sorry, you described inquiries. What do you have inquiries into? Something that's systemic, something that's pervasive, something we need to get to the bottom of. And, and certainly forward-looking. Yeah, yes, yes, agreed. And here's where I think calling the inquiry, announcing that there will be an inquiry called, <laughs> is a yeah. very important thing because there are few things that are more precious in democratic life than conventions, than unwritten rules, um, something, again, I don't think we've ever talked about this, but one of the things that I adore in a, a heavily codified form of collective action like sport uh, are the unwritten rules. The around, spirit of the game. Yes. The, the, uh, the fact that if you're running between wickets in cricket and someone throws the ball and it hits you, uh, you can't then steal another run. Yes, absolutely that right. That sort of thing. Or my, my favourite example, if a basketball game is a blowout, uh, and there's 25 seconds left on the clock, uh, and the defense has largely given up, the person with the ball will not, by any means, go for the shot or go for a dunk. Yeah, they just leave it bouncing. They just leave it, they leave it bouncing. And, and, and so powerful is that convention, so powerful is that form of sportsmanship, that when you find a young buck offending that, the response from vets is ferocious. One of the worst fights I've ever seen was in response to a rookie dunking with two, three seconds left on the clock. I mean, this was his great, you know, this was his great opportunity to, to dunk in a game and he did it. And the vet was absolutely furious and clocked him on the side of the head. So your point's well made. And I agree with the point you're making that conventions are precious. And sure. what this particular thing, sorry, thank you for bringing me back on track. What this particular thing did and it's so interesting seeing the legal advice that came out from Stephen Donahue that the appointment or the self-appointment was valid. There was no constitutional or otherwise legal measure that was offended. There was nothing unconstitutional or otherwise illegal about the prime minister's decision. But the lack of transparency about it, the lack of disclosure, is a serious offense to the conditions, to the fabric of parliamentary and democratic culture. I don't know if you if you had a chance but to read. But we're agreed on all that. Okay, but this is the point. It is a convention, Walid. It's the yes, fabric upon which uh, there's a lovely moment where he cites a ruling from a 1926 case. As Stephen Donahue cites a ruling that you know it's conventions that are the fabric upon which the constitution is written. Now here's the thing: we are living in a time in which democratic conventions are being stretched, I think, just about to breaking point. And then people are being condemned for having broken those conventions and then meeting that condemnation with the shrug with, oh, what's the big deal if it doesn't hurt anybody? And I think one of the things yeah, about... Yeah, but nobody's saying that. This is, the, this is the problem with the argument I think you're mounting, is no one's defending this behaviour. No, that's... No, sorry, sorry, Willie, you're, you're right. And I think one of the reasons why the opposition here has not, sorry, the opposition, the government has not behaved like an opposition in the way that you say, is because I don't think that their rhetoric has been any greater than, any more vituperative, any more ferocious than the, uh, the rhetoric that's already emerged from the side of the coalition, from the liberals and the nationals. So there's a significant... Sorry, in what way? Uh, Anthony Albanese has not condemned Scott Morrison more vocally than his own former colleagues have condemned him. So there is a moment here of rare and uh, I, think I think precious. That's not true. I would be prepared. I to think argue you're talking about you. selected colleagues. Uh, I think actually, because of the obvious political sensitivities, I think people in the coalition are speaking in a way that is more restrained and guarded. Certainly, more than their private rage seems to suggest. If you believe the reporting from people in the press gallery who would be talking to them mm -hmm. privately. Mm -hmm. um, so they've been restrained in a way that I think the Labor Party, because they don't have the same political calculations, have not. Mm. Um, they've made repeated arguments about this is Scott Morrison's 
character, this just shows what kind of a person he is, etc. They've, they've said that a lot. Yes, they but the first, the, very, very start. the first person to call for resignation, that was one of his former colleagues. A yeah, former yeah, of course. Sure. But that's not the... You're, you're talking about rhetoric here, well, not well, measures. Well, yes, but... but and but, and by and large, the, the coalition isn't calling for his resignation, partly, probably for political reasons, because they're worried they'd lose the by-election. Yes. By okay, here's the point. There is a moment here of bipartisan agreement about a matter of shared value that goes to convention. There is a degree of concern that certain non-representative institutions of government, namely public service, Department of Prime Minister and Cabinet, Governor General, may have been complicit in the failure to be as transparent as they should have been. And what an inquiry would get to the bottom of, it's not so much fault-finding as much as it is shoring up the conditions of our common political culture, whereby, whereby the conventions, the unwritten rules, the matters of common decency that hold a kind of democratic life together can be shorn up at a moment when it's those very conventions that are most rapidly fraying. Now, here's the final... Sorry, but so how does it shore them up any more than what's already happened? Well, there's so much about this that we don't know, Willie. Okay, what? Um, to put it as bluntly as I possibly can, who knew what and when? What other forms of advice were being given? What other forms of accountability were being suggested? The, the, the issue at the heart of this, Willie, is... Now, let me just make this as my, my kind of final gambit. Okay. I think we would agree, I hope we would agree, that political decision-making is a matter of immense, almost unfathomable complexity. The streams of advice that have to go in to any given department, to any given portfolio, are such that most of us who think that political decisions are easy or morally straightforward would buckle under their pressure. So the idea that ministers are accountable to the public for the decisions that they make is one that is both precious it goes to the heart of the particular democratic conception of power, that power is not inherent and that power is always met by the countervailing force of responsibility and accountability. You have to give some kind of account for what you did, for the decisions that you made. And in certain circumstances, there has to be the political equivalent of a kind of religious sacrifice when things go wrong. The way that the, the preciousness of accountability is maintained is by when people fall foul of the decisions that they've made they need to own up for it and they need to take responsibility for it. So on, on the one hand, there's a kind of preciousness to the very notion of public accountability for political decision making. At the same time, there's also a kind of fiction around it, isn't there? I mean, the, the experts that need to make these decisions are in a completely different space than the public is and could possibly be. And therefore, the threads that hold together the very notion of political responsibility, that, the, that politicians are responsive to the judgment, to the fault-finding of the public, that is both precious, but it's also, when you really kind of push yourself to it, it borders on being fictional in the sense that, yes, it is. yes, people can vote them out, but we might not really understand what we're doing when we do that, which is why... But we also don't even understand how these decisions get made. Yes, yes, I know. I mean, the whole, the whole cabinet process is a completely opaque process. Yes, it is, which is why those moments when transparency can be shorn up, can be reasserted, and when the public and when all the people who conspire to make up something like the democratic conditions of our shared life, when they can agree on a moment of, uh, of transparency as a kind of reaffirmation of public faith in our democratic culture, those moments are precious and they need to be seized whenever we have them. That's why I but, think... But hang on, I feel like you're answering my questions by stating things on which there's no disagreement. I, yes, I agree with all that. But, but what I'm saying is conventions get shored up in a couple of ways. One is through the moral censure that follows their breaching. Yes, true. And you could not say that hasn't happened here. Mm -hmm. but, I mean, it, it's happened here at a length and a volume that is probably greater than, I don't know, any other censure I can imagine for a, on an individual incident, right? 
Yeah, but there's the danger, Walid, that Scott Morrison effectively becomes the scapegoat. He's dealt with, and no, but no further, involved, no further right? complicity is acknowledged. That no, no, but my, I'm saying the level of censure here is such that anybody who is confronted with a situation remotely like this again cannot be in doubt as to the expectations and the um, and the, the power of that convention. So if what you want to do is reassert a convention, then it's that's done. And per- perhaps even to codify if, it, like to fully Okay, codify but if you it. want to codify it, I, honestly, I think you could codify that tomorrow, possibly this afternoon. You, I, I don't... I just don't get why you need to go through an elaborate process. Waleed, I I think our tendency to scapegoat a single individual, the preparedness on the part of certain political actors to to scapegoat a particular individual, and to be perfectly frank, our collective amnesia is such that the better we can do this, the better we can understand what took place in order to shore up the weight of political responsibility, the better. They're not calling a royal commission. Well, the Greens are actually calling for it to have the powers of a royal commission. Yeah, but that would just be silly. <laughs> <laughs> right. Okay. That's going too far, surely. <laughs> yeah, I, I just, I don't know. I think when you're confronted with something that is so easily and instantly soluble, you go solve it. Yeah, yeah. But I think understanding helps here. Clearly, we need the help of a guest. <laughs> we do indeed. Maria Taflaga is our guest today. She's lecturer in the School of Political and International Relations at Australian National University. Last time we had her on the show, she was helping us sort through the intricacies of British politics. Maria, this is much simpler, isn't it? <laughs> oh, well, perhaps it's more familiar. <laughs> okay, familiar is good. All right. I, so I would not describe anything about this as familiar, actually. <laughs> The terrain, the terrain is is more familiar. So I I think the question that Waleed wants to ask you, Maria, is political accountability. What good is it anyway? Oh, well. Oh, my God, that's scandalously unfair. (laughs) Well, I mean, it it essentially, it it goes back to the thing we were talking about last time, actually, which was legitimacy of of the regime, Mm. you know, I I guess in a democratic um, sense. uh, I guess in an administrative sense, it, it goes to, understanding that the, the decisions made were, were efficacious and efficient and legal and potentially moral and ethical. Um, I actually found your conversation really interesting. And to me, the dispute seems to be whether or not this incident with Scott Morrison is a one-off freak event, or if it is actually the logical end conclusion of a, a mode of politics in which well, people at the pub don't care, so therefore I can just do whatever I want. You know, if I can get away with it, then it might be acceptable and, and that this might be the logical kind of endpoint of of the, that kind of attitude which has uh, governed politics now for, you know, 30 years. Can I, can I press you on that, though? Because, I mean, I, I think you're right and Walid and I have talked about the... Uh, dangers of the so-called pub test. Um, I mean, if there was, yes, that would be one of, say, two or three forms of public argumentation that if I had godlike powers myself, I would want to eliminate altogether from the way that we speak. Um, But Maria, it's not just do people in the pub care about this. These were decisions that were made under, quote unquote, emergency powers conditions. So, there's something about, well, as long as he made the right decisions and kept Australia's response to COVID-19 strong and kept the death rate low, then we kind of don't care. That's not Except argu- no one's arguing this, Scott. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I agree, but that's not an argument for secrecy. This is why what seems to have offended here is the secrecy of it, which is why I think an inquiry is necessary. So, I, yeah, so I think, okay, so there's two things here. I say, I mean, I do think the, the secrecy of it is important. Uh, look, I, I don't think that he really ever needed to exercise these powers necessarily. I, I think our system of government already has the mechanisms in place to manage um, the kinds of problems that might have arisen in the context of the, the pandemic. I mean, uh, you know, Menzies lost like four or five cabinet ministers in a single air crash during a war, and we found a way to continue governing 
during a war. So I, I remain completely unconvinced that any of this was actually um, necessary. I, I think the reason why an inquiry is necessary is because Scott Morrison in some ways is kind of irrelevant. It's the fact that the whole decision arose and was able to happen repeatedly. It's the fact that it points to the the reality that our system of government, which relies on conventions, as you guys so neatly sort of discussed, has many leaky points now where people do not uphold the standard of behaviour that we would expect them to. They don't necessarily fall on their swords. They don't, the consideration of honour or a shared sense of what is completely unacceptable is now contestable and debatable, which is why Barnaby Joyce made the argument that he made, well, that people at the pub don't care. And if you don't buy that, well, you know, I had a national party deal to secure, you know, uh, that it's in essence that the raw political interests of myself and my political party securing goods from the Australian states for my people is actually more important than the democratic system itself. And that is actually what I think is the reason why people who are shocked are so shocked. And that would be the purpose, I think, of an inquiry. Whether or not that is actually what will happen as a result is, you know, remains to be seen. And I don't think that we could necessarily resolve all of those issues that arise out of the kind of galaxy of problems that this one was allowed to emerge from could be resolved um, in an afternoon because some of these things kind of ultimately require trade-offs, you know, like the more you codify, the less scope there is for discretion. Mm. That can be a good thing, but it can also kind of create other perversities. Mm. Yeah, I, I guess the problem is if what you're driving at is a thoroughgoing recasting of the culture of the public service, for example, this inquiry I don't think is going to get you there unless you broaden the scope of an inquiry such that it becomes about so much more than this incident, which is yeah, not what's on the true. table. Yeah, that's true. Right? Yeah. That, that's not what's being prosecuted here. So, in other words, this is being prosecuted as a singular incident. It's, it's not being prosecuted. Right, okay. So what, it sounds like then, Maria, what you're really calling for is a really big inquiry that's not about this event. Yeah, I think I think this this whole incident with Scott Morrison is essentially a catalyst for us to re-examine like what we would call the political advisory system. And that is essentially the nexus between parliamentary accountability, the relationship between the executive and parliament and par- and the executive's relationship with the public service and the way that successive political parties and actors have effectively created too much political overlap between, I guess, what we would consider previously separate roles of political actors and advisors. You know, they've muddied the waters in many ways like by introducing political staff, by introducing consultants, by being able to sort of hire and fire the top of the public service. We, we see that more and more. You know, we don't have what the US has, right, which is all of this sort of highly political architecture and then all of these checks and balances, all of these veto players, um, you know, we have a, a we have a system that is far more kind of opaque and really both of them, to be blunt, actually really do re- rely on norms to work and to function, but for different reasons. The US system needs all of their norms, people to behave like gentlemen, honourable, act in the system's interests. Because they have so many people who can say no, nothing would happen. And that's kind of what's happening in the US now. It's just endless gridlock. In our system, because we don't write the rules down, and there's huge advantages to that, like they can change and evolve over time. But if people don't agree or have a shared idea of what is, uh, you know, a red line that we simply can't cross, then we do have the situation where ministers don't resign when, like, in the past they would have. And you're right, Waleed, like, everyone everyone is kind of shocked and horrified by Scott Morrison's uh, actions in this case because he kept he kept this decision even from the Cabinet, you know, which sort of says to us how much we have kind of lost in the collective decision-making, that function that cabinet used to, uh, you know, have. And the whole point of cabinet debate being secret was so that they could have a real argument. 
you know, right. and, and if he's the, going to keep that secret, right, then who, where's the argumentation? Where's the contestability? Yeah, yeah, agreed. So it sounds like then what we would say is if there's going to be an inquiry, it either has to be much bigger than what is being suggested. That is not something that seems designed to narrow in on a particular event and exact a political consequence for that event, which is, I think, actually how Richard Miles has spoken about it. I hope I'm not verbaling him too violently there. It would either have to be that or it would have to be not at all. And if you were going to do it, it would seem, if you what you're after is interrogating all of the connective tissue that exists in the form of convention between the different branches of government, then would there be, wouldn't, wouldn't there be no argument, no justification for excluding the Governor-General from the contemplation of this? Because he's yeah. part of that process. We then have to decide whether or not he was um, merely observing convention, which is the argument that Anthony Albanese has made, mm, by the way. Right. He was just following government advice. Okay. And I happen to agree with it, by mm. the way. I, I'm not at all in the camp of people who are gunning for the Governor-General over this. But nonetheless, if you're going to if you're going to try to frame this as necessary on the grounds you're articulating, Maria, there's no justification for excluding the Governor-General then. In, in, in either case, what we're looking at is a misconceived response, aren't we? Yep. Yep, I think so. I mean, look, I, I do think an, a narrowly conceived inquiry would, I suppose, really look at the the role of Prime Minister and Cabinet. And I can see some value there. But I, you know, no, I, I agree. I mean, I think Labor has already kind of raised concerns, for example, about aspects of these relationships. So, you know, they, they don't like the amount of consultancies used by the previous government. And if, if you look at the long term data, like it has actually massively spiked under all of the successive yeah. coalition the governments. The privatisation of public had. service functions is mm. enormous. It's, there's no doubt about that. Yeah, Politicisation yeah. of the public service, really big issue, none of which will be unearthed by this inquiry. I mean, it's not like consultants were somehow complicit in this. They were in on it while the cabinet ministers weren't. Okay. Hang on. Sorry. Can I just... So we've got two choices that are on the table. One is a massively increased... Uh, an inquiry with a massively increased scope or no inquiry at all. Can I put in a word for neither of those two options? <laughs> sure. Because... <laughs> And a massively increased inquiry, can I just say, I mean, that I, I, I have a really hard time imagining that that's going to happen because I have a really hard time imagining that that's going to be able to draw on the existing political capital or public interest that would be necessary in seeing that kind of inquiry to the end. You might get it going, but very, 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 very few people would be interested in its outcomes um, apart from, from people like us. Did either of you, were either of you struck by the fact that so many people were eagerly anticipating the handing down of the Solicitor General's advice on Tuesday? As to uh, no, I expected that entirely because I think this has become a matter of political bloodletting and prosecution. Okay, thank you. Thank you. But it's the Solicitor General, which reflects the fact, I think, and and it may well be that some of what we've seen uh, in UK politics since 2016, some of what we've seen in US politics since 2016, so many of our conventions have been so thoroughly shredded that it's almost like the only language that we have left of moral seriousness within politics, the only way we can hold people truly to account is through the language of law. In other words, unless well, I think, someone... I think, you, I think this is all overstated from you today, Scott, because there has been a thoroughgoing holding to account. Okay, hang, hang on though, Waleed. Journalists across the country were waiting with bated breath on the advice of the Solicitor General when we yeah, all pretty much material knew. difference. Yeah, but, but we all pretty much knew what that advice was going to be. Which Sure, but there, there was, I think, what some people would have held as a slim hope yeah, that the but, advice would have come down a different way. But that's way. my point, Waleed. The only language of political seriousness that we have left is the language of law or of legality. I just don't think that follows. Whereas, whereas There was it, plenty of language of political and moral seriousness surrounding this. But 
if there was also a legal breach, then that changes the game of, of because there are consequences does. for that. It might render, for example, the one decision that Scott Morrison did make using these powers illegitimate okay. and challengeable in court, right? So there would be all kinds of consequences that would flow from that. So it was relevant to wait for that decision and to, to hang off the Solicitor General's every word. That was relevant. Yeah, I but don't... But it doesn't follow from that that that's the only way of registering moral or political seriousness, as we've seen for weeks now. However, and after this, I'll hand it over to you, Maria. Um, mm. I, don't, I don't quite agree, Waleed, because I, I do think, especially in the instance of, of Trump, we've seen, for instance, the language of convention proven so completely impotent again and again and again, such that what is it now? Are we up to five, four or five legal uh, initiatives that are now underway against Trump? Because law is the only means left of holding someone who's been so egregiously, flagrantly uh, dismissive of political convention and political morality to account. My, my point is, I think there is a case for a focused, publicly facing inquiry in this particular instance in order to renew public's confidence in the benefits of and in the importance of political accountability and transparency. But that- what's going to happen at the end of this inquiry is that if, the, if it happens and if it's, you know, there's uh-huh. sufficient participation from relevant parties to make it meaningful, what's going to happen is a series of recommendations that will require a bunch of tweaks to standing rules or legislation or something like that. And you could do that now. And if you did that now, that would restore a level of confidence. The, the bit before it, isn't going to be the thing that restores that. If, if, if anything, it may undermine it. Mm, I don't, I don't agree. Right. What do you think, Maria? So I think I think what you're kind of talking about, Scott, is uh, it, it seems like the, the reaction to this event might be like a correction from the way we've been sort of talking about political scandals now for for some time. You know, I keep thinking about all of the sort of corruption scandals we had in the last term of parliament and the sort of typical political response was, well, you know, people like sports halls or people hmm. voted for this or, uh, you know, well, no one really cares. It's all bubble stuff. And, and you know, perhaps unlike the United States, we, you know, we saw a repudiation of this at the um, last election. Um you know, I, I do agree with what you're sort of saying there, Waleed, that, you know, we probably actually already know what reforms we could put in place to improve aspects of accountability or transparency or, or whatever. But I do wonder whether or not it is actually worthwhile that the political class has an actual explicit and sustained conversation about this, you know, I think we have reached a point where can, can I get you to ask can I get you to say what this means in that sentence? Okay, around the way uh, the around the way that government decisions are made about exactly how much uh, information I guess we reveal to the public, but also about these norms, right? And I think it's the norms and the conventions that that are actually the most difficult to to arrest or to to fix because. It is difficult to truly kind of codify norms or conventions or standards of behaviour without creating really rigid rules, you know, and we sort of saw like uh, some sceptical response to things like the quote bonk ban and things like that, right? So it can, and we have, for example, a code of conduct for ministers, but it's not enforced. So, you know, how would we go about enforcing such a code of contact? Like that would create conduct, sorry, that would create like a lot of actual problems as well, because at the moment we, we leave things flexible because we kind of recognize that as government has become more complicated, it's not necessarily always reasonable for, you know, the minister to, to know and be responsible for everything. That said, though, politicians have effectively taken that reasonableness quotient and said, well, if people at the pub don't care or I can get away with it, then what's the problem? Mm-hmm. So yes, I think I totally, that's kind of where, yeah. where, where we're at. Yeah, I agree with that. And I think that's a genuine problem. I mean, like, as Scott's mentioned, we've teed off on the whole idea of the pub test before. The example that always comes to mind when we talk about this to me is the Gladys Berejiklian example. Yeah. Um, she resigned from her post because of an ICAC investigation, and yet no one really seems to care. She remains hugely popular. And I think it might have even been in the aftermath of that we did a show talking about 
why is it that no one seems to care about political integrity? Okay. So I'm totally on board mm. that. I'm, I guess what I'm questioning here is whether or not this is an instance of anything that can remedy that. Because if what you're concerned about is instances of political corruption, et cetera, then there will be, A, far better examples that you can use to prosecute that because they are genuinely more representative of problems in politics rather than one especially unusual event. Um, but, B, you could only interrogate that properly if you were going to broaden your inquiry such to vacuum up all of that stuff I just don't, interrogate I that. just don't agree, Walid. I just... Look, well, one of the many things that I've learned from our dear friend Raymond Gato is that is that, I mean, politics and morality are two very different things. They are different ways of orchestrating and coordinating human conduct towards differing, sometimes convergent, but sometimes not conceptions of the human good. And there is a form of morality that is inherent to politics. So it's not that all politics is moral and it's not that all morality is politics, but there is a form of morality that is... political morality. That is inherent... And it seems to me that what we have here, not in the general issue of political corruption, I think, I mean, what, what the, um, the, the report writers of the Grattan Institute's uh, wonderful recent report on pork barreling have described as gray corruption. Okay, it's legal. It, they're talking about pork barreling quite specifically. Yeah, it's legal, but it kind of offends the demands of democratic morality, doesn't it? I mean, that, that's a completely separate thing. What Scott Morrison did wasn't corrupt, it wasn't invalid. I don't think it was necessarily even immoral outside of the particular bounds of, of political morality. It seems to me we have a moment at a time when democratic norms are being shredded everywhere. After Boris Johnson's prorogation of parliament, that's a flagrant breach of democratic norm. And he shrugs and, yes, so what? Prosecute me for it. At this moment, we have the opportunity for a bipartisan reaffirmation of something that is absolutely of the most fundamental value in our democratic life, which is the responsiveness of a government to its electors. We have a moment of the possibility of bipartisan reaffirmation of this most precious of conventions. I just don't understand what reason there could be not to seize that uh, with an almost religious fervor. Maria, maybe actually I should let you respond to that before I keep banging on. Yeah, okay. So, you know what? Listening to you guys has made me realise that we are kind of talking about, I guess, a, a, a galaxy of, of mm. separate kind of issues. And, and perhaps this is where the, where the dispute lies. I mean, if we look, I guess if we look really closely at the, at the offence of Scott Morrison, is, is that he has accrued powers to himself that he shouldn't have, that he has sort of centralized uh, powers to himself, you know, and accumulated them and violated the sort of process of cabinet government, which is one of the many ways that we effectively curtail the power of a tyrant, right? A king. Um, and and so without telling us without so that telling we us that's right. That's the judgment and without telling the people that he also, you know, maintains a type of secrecy with in order to be able to govern um, effectively, right? And so, so it's sort of it's a sort of a double kind of concentration um, of power, and and that's probably why it's so shocking and, and dangerous because, or, or perceived to be dangerous. I, I think it is dangerous uh, because he's supposed to be the first amongst equals. He's supposed to, to essentially be the head of a, of a government. He's not supposed to necessarily take powers for himself that are not his to exercise. Um, and so, yes, when you conceive it very narrowly, I do think, you know, you're right, Waleed, like we could solve it in an afternoon, we could be done and dusted with it. But, but I do think that if you um, unpick the possibility of why it's been able to happen, then, you know, it hasn't happened in a vacuum and it couldn't have possibly happened in a vacuum. And so I guess it really depends on where you want to sort of set the boundaries. But I, you know, like I, I, I don't think any inquiry would have no value, if that makes sense, because there's no way to sort of answer this question without linking it to these other processes, these other uh, pathologies that have developed in our system of government. And so, yes, I mean, also I love inquiries and, you know, I mean, we had a Royal Commission into the public service um, in the, in the 1970s and um, you know, 
some of that stuff was eventually enacted um, during the Hawke government. So, you know, an inquiry never goes to waste, even if it's not put into practice immediately. Well, would you say the same thing of the Trade Union Royal Commission that the Abbott government launched for what I would regard as nakedly political (laughs) reasons? Right. Well, I mean, you know what? You, you've got me there. I'll, I'll concede that. <laughs> wow. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's that's the thing about it. I mean, it, yeah. Scott, it, I, I hear the point you're making, and I, I'm my general disposition is to be sympathetic towards it. It sounds though like what you're really saying, in the end, is that what would be beneficial here is the norm setting that flows from the political theatre of the inquiry, and I guess that's where. That's probably the source of my disagreement. Hmm, I'm not after political theatre here, especially after we've had two weeks of political theatre. And this will be a touchstone. You can already tell this will be a touchstone. The, the new government could use this to taunt the opposition in question time all the time if it wants. Like it, There are ways in which this will be a perpetual part of the political conversation, especially because there is bipartisan agreement that this is unacceptable. But once you've got bipartisan agreement on it, why do you need a whole theatrical process to give further expression to that bipartisan agreement? Wonderful question. I I agree with most of it, most of what you just asserted. You say political theatre. I would say a publicly facing inquiry. And I think there's a difference between the two. If If this were a show trial then I think that's not good for anybody and it's ultimately uh, an act of political bad faith. So I would say something that's publicly facing as a way of instructing and educating the public about the importance of, of political democratic transparency. The other reason, Waleed, is because what I do worry about, and it's even been reflected in the way that we're talking on this show, about Scott Morrison being a scapegoat. Uh, I... I agree with Maria that there was something uh, untoward and ultimately democratically detrimental about what he did. I think the secrecy is the bigger issue. And I think the extent to which a culture of disregard for convention uh, could enable this kind of thing to happen, that's, I, I guess I'm thinking about the pedagogical value of this, but also if we simply don't let the former prime minister to be a scapegoat, to be the sacrificial lamb, uh, then I think it has the better chance of being institutionally transformative rather than simply cathartic. All right. We'll have to leave it there, I'm afraid. Uh, Maria, thanks very much for joining us in our stoush, standing between us with arms apart, keeping us from coming to blows. Uh, It's been wonderful to have you on the show. I'm sure we'll do so again, probably in the not-too-distant future. Um, Great to talk. Maria Tafalago's lecturer in the School of Political and International Relations at the Australian National University, our guest for this week's edition of The Minefield. Thank you very much for being on this journey with us, and we'll see you soon. listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.